Well, tonight we are in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 through 45, in our fourth message in the Relentless series, talking about the Christian response to the cultural crisis. There's so much about the book of Daniel, particularly about his life, his character, that applies to the need of this hour. How do we speak as Christians in the crisis in which we find ourselves where Judeo Christian ethics are being eroded and undermined or questioned, where everything and anything goes, where every man does what's right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel and there's no God in America. So, so what do we do? How do we live? The context of this chapter is incredible because of what God reveals to a pagan king about the future. And that's the context of Daniel's response here. If you remember from the last message, and you may not, uh, we ended with this quote from E. Stanley Jones. The last word will be spoken by God, and that last word will be victory. David Jeremiah writes, When Nebuchadnezzar dreamed this dream, Persia was a Babylonian vassal state. The Greeks were a group of warring tribes. Rome was a village on the Tiber River. There is no human way he could have seen what God was doing to do this as those Gentile nations unfolded in the future. So he saw all the way in the future. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar sees all the way to the end, and Daniel helps him to understand that. So, so let's look, first of all, at the decay of our day, the decay of of our day. And before we jump into chapter 2, let me just kind of summarize this king's dream. Remember, he's had a dream before, and uh, Daniel interprets a dream. He's been sold into slavery, but Daniel writes down a glimpse into history, how God will build and tear down nations. Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king. He has pagan counselors and soothsayers and magicians and they cannot understand or interpret this dream, but God raises up Daniel and gives him insight not only into the nature of the dream, but the application of the dream. Daniel even tells the king what the dream is about and then what the dream was and then tells him what it's about. You know, one of the dangers of Bible study is we tend to go to our favorite books and we do them over and over again, and we don't read the Bible as a whole. We just study things we want to study. The reason that is dangerous is it gives us a distorted view of God's sovereignty and His response and our responsibility. It gives us a distorted view of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And so typically what we do is we scan the pages, we hit uh, the Gospels, we hit Psalms and Proverbs, we might go to Ecclesiastes, we'll read a little bit in Genesis about Abraham, but on the whole, we stay away from certain books of the Bible because they're too hard to understand. But Daniel is one of the great books of Scripture that we need to study. We don't need to look at the Bible looking for coffee cup verses or a few verses we can highlight. I like what the late J.I. Packer said. The result is that in the ordinary sense of read, 
we never read the Bible at all. We take it for granted that we are handling holy writ in a truly religious way, but this use of it, this pick and choose, this use of it is in fact merely superstitious. I'm just looking for verses that I agree with or I like or I want to use against somebody else. But I'm not looking, if I study the Bible haphazardly, at the big picture of God's sovereignty and my responsibility to what God says. So reading the Word requires some things. For some of you, this is review. For some of you, this is new. First of all, it requires context. Where is that book in the Bible? Is it in the major prophets, the minor prophets? Is it in the law? It is in the wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Is it the Gospels, the life of Jesus? Is it in prophecy? Is it in teaching sound doctrine like Romans and Galatians and, and Ephesians? What do the other books say? Not just what does this book say. What does this book say compared to other books of the Bible? What's the theme going on here? So context is important. A renewed mind is important. When I open the Bible, I need to ask God to renew my mind. I can't understand the Bible without the author, the Holy Spirit, enlightening me in my mind and in my heart about what he's saying. So when we read the Bible, we need to say, Lord, speak because I'm listening. Show me because I want to do something about what you show me. And thirdly, there's understanding. We need to understand that the Word of God is not an opinion. It is God's revelation of himself and of his mind. The other thing I, th thing I think we need to understand is the Bible says more about God than it says about man. It is who man is in light of who God is. It is what man needs to do in light of God's holiness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his sending his son. It's more about God than it is about us. From Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, he is the Lord God Almighty. He's Yahweh, the I am that I am, or the I will be that I will be. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything or anyone. God is sovereign, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, and he's unequaled. The reason that is important is that people come and go. Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations are built and destroyed. But God's plan can never be changed. God will judge sin. He has judged it. He will judge it. God will bring things to an end. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. You see, my responsibility is not to try to figure out everything. There are some things about God that I cannot explain and I can't figure out. They're too big for me and my finite mind. The infinite God cannot be explained in every way, but he has revealed himself enough that we are responsible for what he has revealed to us. We are responsible to obey that revelation. As this world groans and longs for its creator, 
We are called to be people who glorify God. Now please remember, Daniel is a teenager. By the time we get later in the book, he's in his 70s. He's been sold into slavery. They've had a desire to brainwash him, to get him to become a Babylonian. They've changed his name so that one day the name of Jehovah will be forgotten among the Jews. But here he stands firm. And as I've said in the previous messages, we aren't growing Daniels today. Uh, We are taking the road of least resistance. We are going with the tide. We are trying not to make any waves. And we're trying to raise kids that are nice and sweet. But that doesn't mean we are raising kids who love God. We are, in fact developing a Christian bubble, a subculture that does not require us to engage this culture. We wear Christian t-shirts, we wear Christian jewelry, we listen to Christian music, and if we're at the gym, uh, we've got our earbuds in out of respect for other people, but sometimes we have our earbuds in for the simple reason we don't want them to know we're listening to Christian music. We put Christian bumper stickers on our cars. We put Christian coffee cups on our desk. We put Christian scriptures on the walls of our house. We attend multiple Bible studies, but we're not reaching a lost world. What is wrong with this picture? We read Christian fiction because, quite honestly, for most people, fiction is more entertaining and real than the stories in the Bible. We cannot say at this point in 2021, 2020, 2021, and going forward, we cannot say we are in the world, but not of it. What we are actually saying is we are in the world, but we're nowhere near it. We don't want to touch it. We want to build walls, and we want to build gates around our homes, and we want to protect our kids from this world, but ultimately we have to engage a lost world. The holiest person that ever lived was Jesus Christ, and he walked among sinners. We're afraid to walk among sinners. We're afraid they'll rub off on us. Can I submit to you that when we're afraid that sinners are going to rub off on us, it's because we're not students of the Word of God, and we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. One writer says we are living in a Christian cocoon, a subculture that has no clue how to speak for God in the current hour. Secondly, let's look at Daniel's example. Chapter 2 and verse 19. Daniel's example. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He's honoring God. Now, as I read, notice how many times Daniel is talking about God. He uses he or you. This prayer is not about himself. Most of our prayers are about us. Lord, help me, give me this, I want this, I want that, answer my prayer. It's not about God. But Daniel, in seeking to discern the will of God and this dream, is talking about the Lord. God dominates this prayer. Verse 21, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. 
He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. God revealed to Daniel. Daniel, this wasn't a holy hunch. He didn't just think this up. I mean, God revealed it to him. God shows Daniel that what Nebuchadnezzar has dreamed is that, is that every empire and every kingdom is going to fall except one. There's never been an empire or a kingdom that thought it was going to fall. In fact, I was reading a book the other day where toward the end of World War II when, when Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt were negotiating what would happen after the defeat of Germany, one of the flaws in Churchill's thinking was he wanted it to go back to the old ways, to the pre-war days where it was the great British Empire. But that empire would be no more. It was about to just be shrunk significantly. Every nation has a peak of power and then a decline. All nations have, at some point, wealth and power but it has never stayed with any nation or any empire throughout history. This statue, this vision of iron, suggests authoritarian power with repress repressive policies. And that describes most of the empires of the world. But in every world system, there's a weakness or there's pride or there's arrogance that ultimately leads to decline and defeat. And looking back on history, as you study world history, you see these references and you realize the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans are no more. None of these empires exist today. So what do we learn from this kind of prophecy? We learn that biblical prophecy is world history written in advance. God wrote the prophets foretold about a coming Messiah hundreds of years before he was born. God wrote and foretold that kingdoms would rise and fall hundreds of years before they came into existence. In Daniel's day, it was prophetic. In our day, it is historic. Daniel prophesied, said, King, this is it. This is what's going on here. Now we know that the prophecy was accurate and the interpretation was accurate because it was prophetic then, but it's historic now. So when faced with a cultural crisis and facing possible death, Daniel buys some time, we talked about that in the last message, and begins to pray. So let's, let's look at a couple of thoughts here. Number one, the problem moved him to prayer. The problem did not move him to panic. The problem moved him to prayer. He got his friends together and they prayed in agreement and they asked God, God, give us wisdom to know what to say in this moment. 
in a crisis, we need wisdom from God to know what to say in this moment. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Evangeline Blood said, when we pray, it is far more important to pray with the sense of the greatness of God than to pray with the sense of the greatness of our problem. Notice in this prayer, Daniel doesn't go, oh, we're in trouble. You've got to help us. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. He's acknowledging the greatness of God. He's acknowledging that only God can give wisdom. And he and the three are praying together, and they are in agreement that they're going to call on God in prayer. They're going to bombard heaven in prayer. And he uses all these plural pronouns. Intercessory prayer does what no other kind of praying can do. It's the key to revival. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It's the key to divine intervention. Hosea says, break up your phallogram for it's time to seek the Lord. Anne Graham Lotz wrote a great little book on Daniel. She said, effective intercession is offered with wet eyes, a broken heart, and bended knee. Wet eyes, a broken heart, and bended knee. As I was studying this, I came across this statement from George Mueller, the great man of faith who had an orphanage and prayed and God just provided meals and, and the needs of those orphans, thousands of orphans. Mueller may be one of the greatest men. He's in the top three, at least, of faith and of prayer. Mueller was asked how much he prayed. And he said, hours every day. But I live in the spirit of prayer. I pray as I walk, when I lie down, and when I rise. The answers are always coming. Tens of thousands of times have my prayers been answered. When once I'm persuaded that the thing is right, in other words, the thing he's praying for, I go on praying for it until it comes. In other words, Mueller is saying, I pray all the time. I, I'm not just in my prayer closet. I'm praying all the time. I see something, I'm praying. And I keep on praying until I'm persuaded that what I'm praying for is the right thing. And then I keep on praying until God gives me the answer. So Daniel prayed. Secondly, God's answer moved him to praise. If you look at verses 20 through 23, it's a hymn of praise that God is in control. So our prayers should result in praise. Thirdly, God's answer prompted him to act. When God answers a prayer, we praise him and then we act on what he says. This was no best guess. This was no holy hunch. God had given Daniel a revelation from heaven. Fourthly, God's answer reveals a coming kingdom that will not fall. That's the big thing here. He prays. He praises. He goes to the king and shares the nature and the application of the prayer and here's the bottom line. There is coming a kingdom, King Nebuchadnezzar, pagan king, whose kingdom will not last. 
There is coming a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that will never fail. And so let's look at the destruction of world systems. We, we put our hope in world systems. We put our hope in, in, in patriotism, in the military, in the stock market. All world systems are going to decay because they're built by fallen men and women. They are built to fail because they're not built on the foundation of the Word of God. So pick up in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. Now let me just stop right there. What he's saying is, when the Greeks are done, the Romans will take over. What he's saying is, when all these other kingdoms are gone, there's no kingdom coming after the kingdom of God. It is the last, the final, the ultimate kingdom that will never fall. It will crush and put to an end, an end to all these kingdoms, but itself will itself endure forever. Verse 45, Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future, so the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel is saying, God showed me this, I'm telling you this, and I stake my life on the fact that it's true. Now, eight times in this chapter, we see the word mystery or secret. In the Greek New Testament, mysterion is used 28 times in the Greek New Testament. And it means a hidden truth that is revealed only to the initiated. God has things he hides that he reveals to those who know him. This is what he did with Daniel. He was hidden from the king. He was hidden from the sorcerers. It's revealed to Daniel. God revealed the future, the future to Daniel, which was hidden to others. And so here we are, 2,000 years removed from the cross and the resurrection. And as we move toward the end of all things, it is clear that this image refers to the kingdom of God, to Jesus' return, to his ruling and reigning, destroying his enemies, casting the devil into hell, and establishing his kingdom. Now, just a moment ago, I mentioned in this chapter the stone. The stone is an image of God in the Bible, and especially about Messiah. It's in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. It's in the prophets, I believe, Ezekiel and Zechariah. It is in the Psalms, and it is in the writings of Paul in Romans and I think in Galatians. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. He's the chief stone. It was a stone without hands, which means a stone not by human power. Jesus was all God. He was a full, complete revelation of God. Not made by human hands. He was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. He was born of a virgin. He was the Messiah. He was something only God could do was take a virgin and conceive a child. If you study scripture, the return of Jesus is sudden. It's not a gradual buildup. We are moving toward a sudden change. 
The Gospel of Matthew tells us that the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When Jesus returns, he will smite, he will destroy the nations of this world. He will rule and overrule. He will wipe out evil. And can I tell you, it, I mean, you look around right now, it seems like the devil's having a heyday. It seems like he is just running rampant. But one day his day is over, and he will be consigned to his own hell for all eternity. So we should not live in fear. We should live by faith that God has declared the ultimate victory. He will return and he will reign. And if we are true believers, this is important. If we are true believers, our hope is not in earthly kings and earthly kingdoms. Our hope is not in the Constitution. Our hope is not in the president. Our hope is not in government or in military. Our hope is in Jesus. When all of that is gone, Jesus will still be here. He will be in charge. Somebody should say amen, but there's nobody here in the room but Terry, and so I hope you're saying it while you're watching it on the streaming. So let's answer some questions. If this is true, that the kingdoms of the world were end, and that we live in a fallen, godless culture that is increasingly becoming more godless. If this is true, we need to answer some questions personally. Number one, what are the convictions of my heart? What are the convictions of my heart? Not my opinions, which change. Not, I'll just put my finger up in the wind and see which way the wind is blowing and I'll go there. But convictions mean something that is non-negotiable and I will die with this conviction. What are the convictions of my heart? Secondly, what is my testimony to this lost world? What is my testimony to this lost world? You see, if I have a conviction, then I have a testimony. What's Daniel's testimony? There is a God in heaven. What's our testimony to this lost world that's depressed and discouraged and angry and confused and concerned and, and all this ripping apart of our society? What is our testimony to this world? There is a God in heaven. He is not surprised by this. He is not shaken by this. His throne is not threatened by this. And his kingdom is still going to come. Nobody can hijack the plans of God. Number three, when pressured, when I say there's a God in heaven and this world system, this culture pressures me, do I cave in or stand up? Do I become a coward? Do I just get in my holy huddle? Do we sit around in a circle and sing kumbaya and just hope that the world will leave us alone? The world will never leave us alone. The world hates us. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If you're anything for God, the world is going to hate you. So do you stand up or do you cave in? How does my faith impact impossible situations? Number four, question number four. Do I fully understand the necessity of prayer? 
Do I fully understand the necessity of prayer? And remember, Daniel's prayer was first and foremost an acknowledgement that there's a God in heaven and that there's a God who gives wisdom. His prayer is about who God is more than about what is this dream about. Lord, I wish you'd help me understand what's going on in my life. Well, get a right perspective of God, and he might. Murray McShane said, What a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is, and no more. Last question. No, it's not. It's number five. Uh, am I living in light of God's word? Am I living in light of God's word? Do I know the word of God enough that I'm living in light of what scripture tells me? Because scripture tells me over and 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 over again, do not be afraid. Have faith in God. Am I living in light of the promises of the word of God or my feelings on any given day and at any given moment? Last question, do I fully understand that one day I will give an account of my life before the Lord? One day I will give an account of my life before the Lord. Now, there's some habits that we're going to cover here in just a minute, but my daughter sent me this statement, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have it written down, from uh, one of the people that works for the North American Mission Board that he posted on his Facebook page. I reposted it on mine. Basically, this is what he said. This is my paraphrase. One day, we're going to stand before the creator of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. And what will we say about our trips, our sleeping in on Sunday, to the magnificent Savior who died for our sins. I just want to ask you a question. You and I are going to give an account of our lives before God. When he shows us how much time we wasted, what's that going to look like? I can tell you at this point in my life, I look back and I've wasted a lot of days and a lot of nights in things that are not important, in things that are not essential. They don't help me to love God with all my heart and love my neighbor as myself. They're just selfish things that I just want to do. And I think I've got a right to do them. And, and they're things that I never take to the cross and say, Now, Lord, is this okay? Can I do this? It goes back to Tom Ellis' message last Sunday morning. This is about surrender. When I know I have to give an account to God, it's about surrender. It's not about commitment. Commitment is just me trying harder. Discipline is just me trying harder. Surrender is, God, I can't, but I know you can. When I stand before God and give an account, will my life be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God working themselves out in my life? So in light of that, let me give you some habits of highly effective believers. You know, we have these books about highly effective leaders and highly effective managers and highly effective parenting and all that. Let's talk about just highly effective believers. Number one, worship. Worship. Psalm 50, verse 23. Psalm 96, verse 8. Romans chapter 15, verse 9. If I want to be highly effective, I need to worship. I don't need to come to worship 
and ask God to wake me up. I need to come to worship with my worship on. I need to bring my worship from the week into the worship on Sunday and worship on Sunday with my brothers and sisters in Christ out of the overflow. I've worshiped him personally. I need to worship him corporately. Secondly, taking God at his word, Psalm 119. Taking God at his word. God said it. He didn't stutter. There's no revision to this truth. There may be in some translations some dated terminology, but the truth is not dated. The truth is not out of date. The truth is the same, just like Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever. If I want to be effective, I need to take God at his word, which means I don't stand on my feelings. I don't stand on opinions. I don't stand on what the polls are saying. I take God at his word. And when everybody says, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and Chicken Little has brought all his friends to your doorstep, you need to say, there's a God in heaven. Number three, trusting God's promises. Romans chapter 4 and verse 20 and following. Romans 4 verse 20 and following. Trust God's promises. Listen, God has never broken a promise. Now, there are some promises in the Bible that are conditional, conditioned on our obedience. There are other promises that are unconditional. They're just the promises of God. But God has never broken a promise. Every one of us have people in our lives, they've made a promise to you and they've not done it. That's not God. Number four, confessing Jesus as Lord. Confessing Jesus as Lord. Uh, that would solve a lot of our problems. Because one day, every knee is going to bow. Go back up to question number six, every tongue is going to confess on earth, in heaven, below the earth, everywhere, anywhere, everybody, anybody, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's Lord. That's his name in heaven. He's Lord. Number five, seeking to glorify God in our daily lives. So when our feet hit the floor in the morning, we ought to say, Lord, you're the ruler of heaven and earth. I have no idea what I'm going to face on this day. But I pray that as I face it, that you will give me the power by your Holy Spirit, based on the authority of your word, as I put on the armor of God, that you'll give me the power to glorify you in my daily life. You want to know how to deal with the culture? Worship, take God at his word, trust his promises, confess Jesus as Lord, and glorify him in your daily lives. By the way, that's good for me, but it's also good for me to teach my children and my friends and the people that I lead to Christ that this is the way to be effective in a culture that is ineffective in changing anything. Father, I thank you for Daniel. I thank you for the revelation to his heart and to his mind in that atmosphere of prayer. I pray that we would Take these words, put them deep within our heart, and live them out. In Jesus' name, amen.